Most of you were not alive for this, but in 1943, the Allied forces developed an initiative called the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Program. The men and women of this covert operation were tasked with finding and saving pieces of art and other culturally important artifacts before Nazis stole them or destroyed them during World War II. Now, some of you have probably seen the movie Monuments Men with George Clooney, or perhaps read the book. But uh, if not, you should know that prior to the, uh, the initiative developed in 1939, Louvre officials removed the Mona Lisa and 400,000, let that sink in, 400,000 other pieces of art by ambulance. They took them out of the museum. And uh, I don't know about the other 400,000 pieces, but I do know that the Mona Lisa was uh, on the go much of the war. She was expertly hidden in French countryside homes with the help of the monuments later on. She avoided capture and changed location more than six times before finally being returned to the museum in 1945. Another amazing story to come from this program was Da Vinci's Last Supper. You've seen the painting. It's Jesus and his disciples gathered around the table, not to be confused with the dogs playing cards also around a table, Uh, but this mural of Jesus and his disciples was being threatened because allies were bombing the city of Milan and uh, in August of 1943. And this painting is painted on a refectory wall at a convent in Santa Maria del Grazi. And the monuments men rigged scaffolding and sandbags all around this wall. And when the bombing uh, was completed, it was the only wall still standing in the convent. Now, I share this because arguably some of the most important historical artifacts and some of the most beautiful pieces of art were saved because of the foresight and dedication of the men and women responsible for collecting these pieces of art and for hiding these relics. Men and women literally risked their lives to keep artwork safe. And the same thing is happening right now in the Middle East. If you weren't aware, uh, men and women are taking things from museums and trying to hide them from Muslim extremists who believe that artwork is sinful. Now, regardless of where you land on that debate, uh, in the 1940s, the monuments men were not able to save everything. I read an article and then ended up watching a piece on 60 Minutes uh, about how they found in this hermit's home in Germany, actually it was a flat, an apartment, in Germany, they found over 1,500 paintings. Estimated value was $1.3 billion. This man's father was an art curator for the Nazis. And uh, in effect, he just simply stole art. And then his son ended up being uh, able to, to put them in his apartment. But what does all this have to do with church? Well, we're starting a brand new series of messages today called Lost Art, where over the next three weeks, we're going to put our monuments men uniforms on and we're going to recover some lost art. Uh, not art in the traditional sense, as in paintings and artifacts, but rather art as an ability or a technique. There are some godly skills that have been lost in our culture, and I want us to spend a few weeks exploring them. This morning, we're going to talk about the lost art of work. 
So if you brought a Bible, and I hope you did, you can go ahead and grab it, open it up to the very beginning. The first book in your Bible is named Genesis. It means beginnings. You need to find the big number two. Uh, Work is a particularly uh, important topic uh, because Gallup did a workplace poll that showed of the country's approximately 100 million full-time employees, 51% of them admitted to doing the bare minimum at work. So they were not actively engaged in the company. They showed up, they clocked in, they probably checked the email, looked over the calendar, what do I have to do today? And then they just put their head down until they got their paycheck. Uh, That might be some of your all's work experience that, you know, there's no reason to overexert yourself uh, or get hurt. Just get in, get out. Don't cause any unnecessary attention to drawn to yourself. Do not work, you know, look for any extra work to do. That would be a mistake, but... Not only do over half of employees do that, uh, but this, this Gallup poll also discovered that 16% of employees were not doing the basics. They were actively disengaged. They generally come in at least 15 minutes late. They use a side door so that the boss can't see them. After that, they sort of space out for an hour and just look at their desk so it, they pretend like they're working. But on any given week, they probably only do 15 minutes of real, actual work. Uh, which means on any given workday, according to the study, nearly 70% of people in your office are not, not actually working. They hate their job. They're just uh, hoping that they can make it another week until Friday and the weekend comes. American novelist Wendell Berry wrote this, It's sad that we live in a society that has the refrain, Thank God it's Friday. That means you despise five-sevenths of your life. Have you thought about that? Uh, Perhaps you can relate to the great American rock band Loverboy, who in 1981 coined the famous lyrics, Everybody's working for, somebody help me out, the weekend. Yeah, that's right. Maybe that's, again, your experience. Prominent theologian Homer Simpson, he said, uh, if you don't like your job, you don't strike. You just go in every day and do it really, really poorly. That's the American way. Absolutely. Uh, But as we'll see, according to the Word of God, it might be the American way. It is not the Christian way. It's not how life or work should go. And I'll tell you what really got me thinking about this whole idea of work was in uh, our first Wednesday worship that we do. We've been going through books of the Bible, seeing how they fit into the story that the story of the Bible is trying to tell. And in January, we were in the book of Nehemiah. And as I was studying and preparing, uh, Nehemiah 4.6 really jumped out at me. It says this, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. Why? For the people had a mind to work. That was interesting. In the New Living Translation, it reads, the wall was built for the people had worked with enthusiasm. And I thought, man, enthusiastic work, a mind to work. I uh, wasn't seeing that a lot in my experience. And like I always tell you, anytime you read the Bible, you should ask, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Is this simply describing how the people worked and what their mindset was? Or is this prescribing to us how we should view our work? And if it's prescriptive, which I'm going to argue that it is, then how come nearly 70% of Americans do not have a mind to work? 
How come nearly 70% of employees do not enjoy their jobs or work with enthusiasm? Here's what I believe. You might want to jot this down. This is my entire message in one sentence. When work is a blessing, life is joy. When work is a duty, life is bondage. When you hate your job, all of your life is affected by that. You're in bondage. And the reason the vast majority of Americans hate their job and hate to go to work is because they misunderstand the meaning of both. You're in Genesis chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he had rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now I've done the hard part for you because you need to know that the word work there in the original Hebrew, it means craftsmanship or handiwork. Uh, It's artistic in nature. Um, So I'm sure some of you have been to a craft fair or perhaps Silver Dollar City where uh, people are crafting items to sell and you might actually get to see them hand forging metal or scraping wood or putting things together, whatever it is. It's very much work, but it's also very much an art. That's what this word work is describing, artistic, handcrafted pieces. God is not just writing a TPS report. He's forging something. He's, he's speaking it into existence. With that in mind, look at verse 5. Because it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You can see his work here. It's very much handcrafted and speaking. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Check out verse 15. Why did he put the man there? The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and keep it. Now you need to know that the word work here is different than what we saw in verse 2. The word work here, it translates to toil or accomplish or to serve. You can see the difference is drastic. This is like the difference between my job and some of your all's job. I read, I write, I think, I form messages. Some of you all, you have physically demanding jobs. I know there's men here that, and women that break up fields, they plant, they harvest, they plumb, they do electrical, uh, work with their hands. It's all very physically demanding. The most physically demanding part of my job is walking over to the Keurig to pour in water. You all understand what I'm saying? Like it's not super complex. Uh, sometimes I'm so lazy, I just text Sherry in her office, hey, can you come into my office? Because my legs are not worth walking that far, you know, whatever it is. But uh, I understand that some of you all have a big job, and this is the difference in work. God is speaking, He's handcrafting uh, the man when He works. It's about toil, it's about strive. Um, But what I want you to understand is that both were part of the initial plan of God. That is to say, work was not a result of sin. Maybe this will help you. When God created the world and everything in it, He looked down, He said it was good. And as J.D. Greer points out, good is good, but good is not perfect. Good leaves room for improvement. 
So initially, when God created work, he intended for us to take the raw materials that he had created and that he had made and that he had planted, and we were to improve upon them for God's glory and our joy. Understand, God's never made a chair. God's never crafted a table. He made a tree. You know, God's never woven a basket. He, he made plants and leaves. God has never baked bread. He made people to plant grain and harvest grain. He made other people to ship the grain to the mill. He made other people to mill the grain into flour. And then he made other people to take that flour to a bakery. And he made other people to take that flour and mix it with water and yeast and sugar and to bake it and to package it. He made other people to sell it. And praise God, he made some of us to eat it. You all know what I'm saying. Uh, Unless you're you know, gluten-free, in which case I apologize. That was an insensitive, you know, example. Whatever you eat, uh, God made people to make it and sell it to you, whatever it is. Furthermore, Scripture makes it clear that we are made in God's image. So work is for people to see in us God. And for us to, for people to say, how cool is God? Let's worship Him. The purpose of work is for people to see God in us and praise God for it. Also worth pointing out, God does not give you the ability to make trees or pollinate seed or uh, direct the weather. Why? Because you're not God. And you are created to be in a relationship with Him and to rely on Him. And it's His provision that allows any of that to happen. God is the provider, not you. Well, he's not doing a very good job, Pastor. Well, calm down. We're going to talk about that. There's no reason to yell at me quite yet. Okay, let's look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So we not only have a need for God to be in relationship with him because he's the provider and he allows us to work, but we also have a need for each other because it's not good for us to be alone, but we also need help because we're not gifted in everything. In other words, work has always meant to be something we do to pursue God, to glorify him, and to serve other people so that we can help each other. Work is not about serving yourself. And too many people make decisions on their work about how it's going to serve them. And when you think that way, you're thinking sinfully. And most people do one of two things, which in both cases, it's about them. Either A, they try to create work for other people because those people are not working hard enough like they are. And so they uh, demand that those people not be so lazy and be more like them. And uh, they give them work to do, which they try to disguise this as, oh, I'm just helping them out to become a better human being. But that's not true. It's all about pride. It's all about them. They need to be more like them. Or B, and this is more common, People make decisions for work based on how much money they will make, not based on how much glory it will bring God. And I'll say it this way. People today are more interested in prosperity than they are purpose. But God has created you with a purpose. Did you know that the word vocation, it comes from the Latin word voca, which means calling? that when people hundreds of years ago were speaking the Latin all around the known world, they were using the word vocation because they believed they had a calling in life. 
that they were doing something to help other people. They believed their jobs mattered, not as a benefit to them, but as a benefit for the society that God had placed them. They believed work was designed to help other people. Yet, shortly after World War II, people started not thinking in terms of service and provision, but rather in terms of security and profitability. Which, listen, I don't blame them. They had just witnessed a single country, you know, under the direction of an insane dictator, nearly take over the world. They had witnessed what happens when the darkest of people bully the weakest of people. So they committed to making sure that something like that would never happen to them. But the consequence of that decision was that they became the first generation in the history of the world who began thinking in terms of consumption, not production. Not how does this benefit the people around me, but rather how does this benefit me? And when you start thinking that way, work becomes the primary source of your identity and therefore idolatry. When you start thinking work is what's going to save me and keep me safe, and you define your worth by the status of your job, you're thinking that work is going to be the biggest thing in your life. It's essentially God. And it's no longer what you do, it's who you are. And so you're no longer a child of the living God, you're a teacher, or you're in the healthcare industry, or you're a factory worker, or whatever it is you do. And instead of depending on God for our future, we start depending on the success of our job to take care of us. Again, that's idolatry. I trust me, I trust my job, I'm the author of the future, I make my own way, nobody's going to tell me what to do, I am who I am, and this is idolatry. Now, in fairness to the folks who lived through World War II, this actually all started in Genesis 11. It just took a few thousand years to infect our souls today. Uh, But in Genesis 11, we get the story of the Tower of Babel. You can read it on your own. I simply need to point out to you one verse to really drive this point home. Genesis 11.4 reads, the citizens of Babylon say, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for who? Say it out loud ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. So where work started as, look at God, look at His provision, look at His creativity, let's worship Him. By chapter 11, work becomes, look at me, be impressed by me, be uh, amazed by my skill and how awesome I am. And if you trace the origins of this in the United States, you see that in 1948, people started buying things they didn't need to impress people they didn't even like, and it's still with us today. And everybody's making decisions about how much money they can make and what they can buy, and they think this is going to provide them with security and happiness. And back in 1948, consumer spending began to arise because the economy started booming. We got all these people back from the war, and therefore consumer debt began to rise. We started doing things like setting up credit accounts. And in response, parents started pushing their kids towards college, not because they were passionate about a job or a career, but because in 1948, the only way to make a lot of money was with a degree. And the only way that you could afford all this stuff that was going to provide you with security and therefore happiness was to get an education. 
And the lie is still permeating our souls today. Mike Rowe, who has become uh, a leading advocate on this uh, idea of work and a leading voice, he wrote this, As a society, we continue to push ever larger numbers of students into ever higher levels of education. The main effect of this is not better jobs or greater skill levels, but a credentialist arms race. See what he's saying? He's saying that, uh, which I agree with, we're forcing kids to go to college to get a degree for no other reason than to say, look at me. I have more degrees than a thermometer. I'm so awesome and I'm so smart. You know, is this not one of the first things that you ask high school kids graduating and what they're going to do? Where are you going to school? What's you, what, what are you going to major in? And if they say, well, I'm going to KU, you say, oh, praise God, that's where you absolutely should go. Jesus would have gone to school there. And, you know, if they say something else, you know, I'm going to K-State or Wichita State or some public school or private school, whatever it is, you say, oh, bless you. You know, we'll be praying for that. Hopefully God works it out in your favor. Uh, God forbid you go to junior college because then they'll just make fun of you. But whatever it is, uh, did you know that only 27% of college graduates work in a field related to their degree? That's less than one in three. Case in point, your boy right here. I did not go to school to be a pastor. Uh, the average cost of four years of public education, $57,000. If you go to a private school, you can almost double that. Average cost of a private school is $104,000. Those numbers are somewhat misleading because it takes the average student six years to get a four-year degree. So it's not $57,000. It's closer to $85,000. It's not $104,000. It's closer to $156,000. Well, a lot of people go to school for seven years, Richard. Yeah, they're called doctors, okay? Uh, But the reason it takes six years to graduate is because over 50% of students enter college with a major of undecided. And over 80% of college students will change their major at least once. Statistically, they'll change it three times before they graduate, which is why when you finally do graduate after uh, you take into account all your Pell money and grants and scholarships and all of that financial aid, you will still owe your institution nearly $40,000. And since a college degree doesn't really mean that much anymore because everybody has one and you can pretty much buy it online nowadays, you won't get that high-paying job you thought you were going to get and you'll likely default on the loan. At the end of 2018, in the United States, we had $1.5 billion that had been defaulted on in student loans. Kids just can't pay it. And so they've stopped. Uh, Just to put that in perspective... Uh, the student loan debt in America right now today, $1.52 trillion. This is what we're saddling young people with. They're somehow going to have to figure out how to pay over a trillion dollars. What are you saying, Pastor? Don't go to college? Maybe. If you're not afflicted with a passion for the major, or if you can't afford it, which 80% of students can't, and 80% of students aren't afflicted with a passion for the major, why are you spending upwards of $60,000, which is more than my first house cost, to try and get a job that likely won't exist when you graduate? If you like money, Fox Business just put out a report that says, Do you understand how much money you could make in six years? 
Fox Business just put out a report that said 80% of construction firms are unable to fill open slots with qualified workers. They show there's a national shortage of plumbers, electricians, and other tradesmen. So much so that those industries will now pay you to get trained. They said that the average employee in one of those industries makes roughly $40,000 a year. So in six years, you will have made $240,000. That's a quarter of a million dollars. And if you don't buy stupid stuff that you can't afford, you could more than pay for college if you decided to go back. And I've talked to hundreds of college students since becoming a pastor. A lot of colleges invite me to come and speak at their chapels and whatever for unknown reasons. But um, based on that, those conversations, I have literally, in my preparation, I could not think of a single college student who chose their major based on what God had said. Like, like he didn't even enter into the equation. Almost every one of them chose their major based on how much money they thought they could make or something that their parents had told them. Like, God is nowhere in the arena when deciding what they want their life to look like. Despite it being their working career, the vast majority of their life. And everybody wants to push back on that and say, well, what about the, the kids that are called into ministry? Surely they brought God in, into the equation. Well, the average youth pastor right now in America will work 18 months and leave the ministry. The average pastor who goes to seminary, who spends six years, whatever it is, getting the degree, they'll leave the pastoral ministry in five years to not return. So listen to me. I'm going to make sure you're hearing what I'm saying. I'm not anti-education. I think education is important. I have a master's degree. My wife has a master's degree. My mom has a master's degree. My dad went back to school while working a full-time night job in order to get his college degree. So I'm not anti-education. I'm anti-decision-making based on perceived monetary value. And that's how everybody is making almost every single decision. What's it going to cost me or how much can it earn me? It is a myth that if you're unhappy, the cause of your unhappiness has to do with your boss, your job, or how much money you make. It's a lie. And the American culture's idea of happiness is work less, earn more, retire early. And I cannot see that anywhere in Scripture. And every college student I know of right now wants to be a VP as soon as they graduate, and they feel like they're entitled to it. And I talked to one kid whose career uh, that, you know, his aspirations, uh, what do you want to do? YouTuber. What? What does that even mean? Like, oh, I'm just going to film videos all day and get paid millions of dollars to do it. Good luck. You know, I mean, but this is what... Uh, the, the society and everybody thinks is hard work. And how is that working out for us now? Well, depression rates are at an all-time high. Suicide rates are at an all-time high. Divorce rates, drug overdoses, debt, and mental disorders, all at an all-time high. It's slavery, it's oppression, because when work is a duty, something I have to do to maintain my standard of living, then life is bondage. But when you have joy in your heart because working is a gift from God and a blessing, then life is amazing and you have joy. 
So what do we do? All good information, Pastor. How does this change my life? Where do we go from here? Well, write this down. Today, I will choose to find meaning even in the mundane. Today, I'm making the decision because that's absolutely what this is, a conscious decision that you can make to find meaning even in some of the mundane work that I might have to do. Watch this, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Make it your goal, brothers and sisters, to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands. How many of you all wrote that down as your New Year's goal? I'm going to mind my business this year. This is my, I don't need to lose the 10 pounds. I just need to work with my hands and mind my business. Verse 12. Then people, when you're minding your own business, who are not believers will respect the way you live. Tell me you wouldn't stand out in this fast-paced, social media-driven world if you weren't stressed out all the time and you weren't anxious all the time and you minded your own business and you just lived a quiet life and you weren't thousands of dollars in debt and when you had had to go to work, you had a smile in your face and joy down in your heart, deep down in your heart, joy, 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 down in my heart. Come on, somebody, you all know this song. As if like this was your life. Tell me that would not cause people to look at you and ask you, why are you so happy? We're at work. Yeah, because God gave me the ability to work. The question before us today is, why does this not happen? Because if you look at the statistics across Christians and non-Christians alike, it's virtually identical. Workplace hatred, depression, all of that nearly identical between Christians and non-Christians. So why is it so hard for us, if you're a believer in Christ, to find meaning even in the mundane? Two reasons. Obviously, we've covered one, sin. Pride. We're making decisions based on ourselves. We have no idea what we really even want because Scripture makes it clear that your heart is deceitful above all things. It's leading you astray. It's the whole reason God had to send His Son Jesus to this earth to lead us into a better way. Which Jesus says, I've come to bring you life to let you have it to the full, to set captives free, which sin is a big deal because it causes us to never be able to enjoy the present. We're always looking forward to something else. You know, I'm sure some of you have believed in your mind that God doesn't really love you that much right now, but once you get everything together, He's going to love some future version of yourself better than He does right now. You know, I ask people all the time, how many of your sins were future sins when Christ died on the cross? All of them. So God loves you right now just as much as He's going to love you 50 years from now. <clears throat> and we're making decisions based on future experiences or we're wishing that the good old days could just come back because they were so amazing and our sin is causing us to you know, misconstrue that as well. Blaise Pascal bemoans this when he writes, We seem never to be able to be happy with the present. Either we yearn for the future and wish it would hurry up and get here, or we mourn the past and wish it had not flown by so quickly. Are not all of your thoughts occupied with the past or the future? We scarcely ever think about the present, for it is most painful to us. 
We conceal it from our sight because it troubles us. And if it happens to be pleasing to us, we only focus on the pain of it slipping away. Most of the time, we only think of the present to plan for our future. The present is never our end. The present is our means. The future alone is our end. So we never live. We only hope to live someday because we are always preparing to be happy and there never are so. Stop preparing to be happy. Decide today is the day that I'm choosing to find joy. Now, here's what I'm trying to help you understand. If you want to find meaning in the mundane of what could be your job, if you want to start enjoying it, you have to redefine your miracle. You know, how about instead of going, dang it, I got to go to work today, you start choosing to say, all right, I get the opportunity to go to work today. You know, how about you start choosing to believe that God did something miraculous just for you to even wake up? Praise God, I got another day on earth. I got another 24 hours of some sort of witchcraft, you know, taking carbon dioxide in my lungs and making it oxygen. Who knows how that happens? And then pumping blood through my body just so I could even move. Think about it. You'd had no part in that whatsoever. At no point did you think to yourself, I better beat heart, beat heart, beat heart, because if you did, you'd eventually forget and drop dead. You all know what I'm saying? Like you get distracted and it'd squirrel and you'd be over. And start redefining what you find to be amazing. You know, start asking yourself in the mundane, what should I be learning from this experience? Not how can I get out of it? What can I learn in response to it? This is you daily making the decision. I'm shifting my mindset. Today is the start of a new day. It's going to be a good day. And nobody's going to steal my joy. And no weapon formed against me is going to prosper. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching better than you're responding. This is a decision that you can make every day. Put a post-it note in your car. Put something on your mirror. Today's the start of a new day. It's going to be good. Nobody's going to take it from me. I'm choosing joy. I'm going to prosper. Now, admittedly, that's a lot easier for some people than it is for others. You know, there are some people who are just pessimists in life and Eeyore in nature and, you know, just don't be friends with them, I guess. I don't know. But try and help them find joy or something too. I don't know. But really, it's simply a choice. Now, the other reason people can't find meaning in their work, it has nothing to do with sin. Instead, it's because they believe a faulty assumption. They believe that what they love to do has to be what they make a living at. That's why everybody tells you, oh, find what you're passionate about. And if you can figure out how to make a living at what you're passionate about, then you'll never work a day in your life. Isn't that what you've heard? Now, what you need to hear me say is what you love to do and how you make your living do not have to be the same thing. And I'm going to show you this in Scripture. But remember our boy Adam? God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it, right? That's what we learned. God planted the garden, put man there, said it's not good for you to be alone, put Eve in there with him. But God didn't give him any options for his work, did he? He put him in the garden and said, here's your plants, 
He brought animals to him and said, you name them. You know, what if Adam was afraid of animals like I am? Like how many of you all know we wouldn't have spiders if I was chosen to name them? You see what I'm saying? Boom. Sorry about that. Uh, You know, but uh, what if what if Adam didn't like planting and, and he didn't have a green thumb? God simply gave him the job. And my point is God might have given you your job. Not so that you could find fulfillment in it, but so that the people you work with could find fulfillment in Jesus by seeing the way you work. Uh, Your job might be to lead people to Jesus. And the point of Adam's job was not happiness, it was holiness. God's image in him. And the same thing is still true for you today. You can be a witness at your job for no other reason than you decide to work hard and have joy. You don't have to be weird about trying to bring Jesus into every conversation. Just work hard and and find extra things to do. Go above and beyond. Serve people. Uh, but I, I told you I wanted to show you the verse that, that this comes from. Ecclesiastes 5.18 I have seen what is best for people here on earth. They should eat and drink and enjoy their work. Why? Because the life God has given them on earth is short. God gives some people the ability to enjoy wealth and property that he gives them. As well as the ability to accept their state in life and enjoy their work. They do not worry about how short life is. Why? Because God keeps them busy with what they love to do. I hope you saw this, because he makes a distinction between work and what you love to do. And Solomon, who Scripture argues is the wisest man who ever lives, uh, except for Jesus, he says it's what, what's best for people is good food and good drink. Your translation might say wine. That's a different message. We'll, we'll come back to that one later. Good food, good wine, and, and fun. Uh, but he, he says what else is best for people is for when people to enjoy their work because life is short. And then he says that God's going to keep people busy with what they love to do. The distinction is clear that sometimes your job might not be what you love to do. That it could be a hobby. So God gives you your job. It might not be something to do. He, he planned you for a purpose. He put you on this earth, as Acts tells us, at this specific time, in these specific boundaries for you to work your job and, and, and do it with all of your heart and bring glory to God in it. But when you clock out, He'll keep you busy with what you love to do. And too many people in the world right now are not choosing to look at their job as a mission field. That there are people there who God brought there for no other reason than you to share the love of Jesus with them. And people just want to see how quick they can get out of their job when they need to be looking at who can they help because of their job. And God will bless you and you can choose to use that blessing for His glory or for your benefit. And my point is you need to be choosing to use it for God's glory. Now the last thing that I need to say to you before we close is that because sometimes God will give you a holy discontentment in your job. You need to hear me say that. That sometimes God will give you a holy discontentment to lead you out of your job and into a new career. But more often than not, this holy discontentment will be found in Scripture that God will be leading you and you'll be praying through some things and and He'll be leading and directing you away 
And more often than not, it'll be confirmed in somebody else. So people are always asking, well, how do I know if I should get out of my job or how I should not? Does it line up with Scripture or other people confirming it? And that's not an easy decision, and I completely understand that. It's one of the hard parts of life, discerning the voice of God. Uh, But the bottom line is simply this. When work is a blessing, life is joy. When work is duty, life is bondage. And Jesus came to set the captives free. He does not want your work to be bondage. He wants you to enjoy your life. And He wants you to maximize your life. In Colossians 3.23, we're going to do whatever we do as for the Lord and not for man. That includes your job. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to pray to God to help encourage us to find joy again. God, we're asking you to do what only you can do, to come into this place and speak to our hearts. I know many of you have come in with baggage and a lot of voices yelling at you and a lot of things vying for your time. This is a holy moment. I'm asking you to quiet yourself. And try and hear from God. What is He trying to speak to you? What things are you needing to reorient to to bring God glory? Maybe you were just laid off. You're looking for a job. Maybe you don't like your job. Quiet your heart and your soul and hear from God. He's trying to set you free. I don't want to miss an opportunity with you either because some of you, the bondage that you're in is the slavery of sin. And God came to set you free as well. Scripture makes it clear that if you'll confess your sins and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. And you can start choosing joy again. And so I invite you to pray with me. Say, God, I believe in freedom through Jesus. Set me free. Forgive me of my sin. I believe in Jesus. I believe He died. But I believe He rose from the dead. Because of that, I'm made new. Thank You for saving me. God, thank You for new life. Thank You for Again, just the freedom we have to come into this place. Help us trust you with our lives, trust you with our jobs. Help us to choose to find meaning in those things. To bring glory to your name because you're worth it. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.